Welcome to the latest episode of the We Belong Here podcast hosted by Civic Commons. It is May, and that means it is the Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And I'm really excited to host uh, two local residents uh, with that lived background, lived experience to come onto the podcast and just talk about belonging, about their identity, about who they are, how they became who they are, and also to tell us about some of the projects that they are working on. And so I'm really excited to have uh, Julie Pham and Maya Mendoza-Ekstrom here. And so I'm going to have them give a, a brief intro for themselves and their, in their own words. So I will start with Julie. Tell us a little bit about yourself real quickly. So I, uh, I have two names. My English name is Julie, and my Vietnamese name is Hoai Hương. And Hoai Hương means to remember one's homeland. And I was given my English name when I was getting registered for kindergarten. So that's a bit about me. I'll share more. Nice. Uh, Maya, tell us about yourself. Yeah, Maya Mendoza, um, born and raised in Seattle, in South Seattle, um, and really proud granddaughter of a a Filipino immigrant from the early 1920s. We'll talk more about that. Wow, Brad. Tell us, what is your origin story? Like, how did you become who you are today? What are the events that shaped you? Feel free to take as little or as much time as you want in answering and delving into that question. It's interesting because I answer this question differently in di- in different in different ways, and I the, the the two things that have fundamentally shaped me one is one is an abundance, and that is soccer and sports, and one is an absence, and that is that my grandfather died before I was born, so he died a few few years before I was born. I never got to meet him, um, and it it has always felt like I have missed out on that family history, that legacy, that connection to the Philippines. Um, he was part of the wave of the Bawangites that came from Bawang on the west coast of Luzon that, that disproportionately came through Victoria Island to Seattle in the, in the 20s, in the, in the late teens and 20s. And feels like everybody, every Filipino family in, my, in Seattle is my cousin. And so, um, but I never got to meet my grandfather. And so, so I, I knew my white grandmother who he married and obviously my, my dad and uh, my two, my two uncles have been part of sort of the, the, the shared history keepers of, of our family, but, um, but really never got to meet him. And, and that absence has sort of been really profound for me in a lot of ways. I think um, it, I'm, I was a history major. I've always loved history. I've leaned into my family history a lot and asked questions and explored. And, um, you know, in college, was drawn to sort of just the the geopolitical landscape of Southeast Asia, sort of its its own unique colonial history and heritage, um, different players in the in in that space between the Dutch colonizers, the Spanish in in the Philippines, obviously, um, and you know my uncle, my oldest uncle, um, uh, got stuck in Indonesia during the Suharto collapse in in the late nineties. Um, he was going to go to this, this epic journey to where my, my father, my, my grandfather was from, he was going to be the first in our family to go home. And it was really in, in that moment where some of the forces, these forces of sort of like wanting to think about our history, wanting to connect there, were, were starting to manifest. Um, and he got stuck there and he decided to move there. So he lives now and has lived for the better part of the last 25 years in Bali. And it's been a better jumping off point for him to, to feel connected to 
grandpa and the heritage of, of our family. And he's, he has traveled to Boang. He has traveled to La Union, which is, which is where the, the Mendoza clan hails from. There are lots of Mendozas still there. Um, and so it really was that uh, decision as well that then precipitated all of us to travel to Southeast Asia as a family for the first time. And um, I, re- I, I reflect on this now because it happened it's happened now 10 years ago to, to me. But when my uncle first came home from Indonesia, he said, the reason that I decided to stay, the thing that got me to stay was I was out in the rice fields and I was watching this little boy clean the water buffalo. And he was being really diligent about cleaning the water buffalo in the rice fields. And, and, it, and it occurred to my uncle at the time that that was a story that grandpa had shared with him. That was his job in the rice paddies in, outside of Luang when he was a little boy. Um, and it struck him that it's the closest he's ever felt to home. And wow. it's interesting because that is so far removed, so far away from the, you know, literally on the other side of the world, a life experience that is so far from the one that I grew up with in, in Burien, so far away from the one my dad and my, my, my uncle grew up in Algona, um, you know, just outside of Auburn. And, and to still feel that sort of just really seminal connection to a place and a lifestyle that I, I, would never have had an affinity for or knowledge of. Um, and if anything, that that moment solidified for me how important it is to lean into that Filipino heritage because, you know, I've moved I've moved through the world as much as I've wanted to, as mm-hmm. white and non non and non anything as I've wanted to. And in many cases with a Mendoza last name, a, a generalized assumption that I'm Lat Latino. And and if anything, have had to sort of own that Filipino heritage as like the first part of my introduction. I'm Filipino, just just to, just to clear the air to make sure people don't think that I'm Latino. I'm Filipino. I, I want to own that part of me. But but that experience in, in 2007 really galvanized for me that you know that absence that I had been feeling like is is actually important. And the the way in which I show up in the world, the way in which I sit in places that I've had the place, you know, chance to sit now in positions of leadership inside of organizations that that's, that's something that's important for me to own is this, this, this Filipino story. And that really two years from that boat or two generations from that boat, um, you know, that decision with nothing in his pocket to come here to the United States, that is the immigrant story, but it's also my family's story. And it's the story of a lot of Filipinos in, Hmm. in, in Seattle as well, specifically. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's, it's really easy for me to talk about the abundance of soccer and sport as defining for my character and my my personality, sort of where I am sitting as the, the chief operating officer for Seattle Sounders, like that, that's hard not to, but at the same time, it's really the, the equally defining for me is that that absence, that absence mm-hmm. of my grandfather in my life and having, having sort of like a, a long, a long, you know, road in my adulthood to try to connect with with him and you know what would have prompted him at the age of of 20 to 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 leave all of that and come here um and it took seeing that and and experiencing that for it to really hit home of how important it is to to bring those two pieces of our family story together absolutely i appreciate your your story and also your connection to i think julie and myself as history majors yep right uh, and so we're all actually, we all studied history, which is kind of fascinating. You don't usually find three of us in a room like this. Um, but Julie, I would love for you to also like maybe riff off of anything that Maya said, but tell us a little bit about your origin story too. Maya, I really loved how you said the, the abundance and the loss and thinking about that framing. And as you said that, I was thinking, hmm, how would I, how would I apply that to my own life? Um, 
And so I'll share a bit and then I, then I think I've got a way to apply it. <laughs> so, so, love it, love it. uh, I mean, a really strong part of my identity is, is that I came with, uh, as boat people with my parents when I was a two month old baby from Vietnam. So my father was in re-education camp for three years. He had served in the South Vietnamese uh, Navy. And so after Saigon fell in 1975, he was sentenced to re-education camp. And and after being in re-education camp, and once he got out, he's like, I don't know if I'm going to be put back in. So we need to leave. And so we were actually the first in the family on both sides to um, to flee by boat. And um, and I just... I always think of that poem by Warshawn Shire, a Somali British poet, um, the poem Home. And you have to understand that no one puts their children on open water unless the water is safer than the land. And um, and so we came as uh, we came as refugees and landed in Seattle. And my I um, my parents had two younger brothers. My parents did a whole bunch of odd jobs. Um, my, uh, they went back to school. And then my dad um, and mom founded uh, Northwest Vietnamese News. Uh, it's the first privately uh, owned newspaper, Vietnamese newspaper in the Pacific Northwest. And so they founded that in 1986. And that was a really big part of my identity. And so, um, so thinking about abundance, actually, the Vietnamese culture was very, was was very rich, even though actually once I entered school, I stopped speaking Vietnamese. So I told you the story of how I was registering for kindergarten. My parents turned to me and they said, hey, we have to give you an American name now. And they had uh, they'd both studied uh, French in Vietnam. And, um, and so they said, what about Julie, which in French is Julie. Right. And so um, and so I'm both Julie and I didn't actually learn of my Vietnamese name until I was uh, until I was in high school, uh, probably a senior in high school, and then started using it once I started living in Vietnam. So the abundance of just being very, of having a strong sense of pride in the Vietnamese refugee community. And my teachers knew who my parents were and what we did. And um, we'd go to all the fairs. um, And and then I guess the loss would be, it's really my parents' loss because they never went back to Vietnam. And so even the name Hoi Hung is to remember one's homeland because it was just, we're not going back. And, um, and so I went back to Vietnam for the first time in, uh, after my first year of, it was my, uh, after my first year of, of grad school. And so I went for between my master's and my PhD to study language. And, um, and I, I had this kind of, at the time, a kind of a scholarly look at it. It was like, this is, I am not kissing the motherland here. I, I don't have all this nostalgia. And being there though, I realized how much my parents had left because the lifestyle was so different. Just like mm. even the, the, when it gets really, because it's so hot, people cool down during at night and there's such a nighttime culture and just seeing people ride around in their mopeds and seeing like, wow, that was really different. They, they did leave a lot. Um, and so that sense of loss was more of a ghost in our in our life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so my parents um, had the, uh, I grew up with the newspaper, grew up with, went through that transition of putting, rolling out the newspaper on wax, right? And like rolling it on and doing that typeset that way and then moving to desktop publishing. And the newspaper is actually across from Franklin High School. And for many years uh, until Sound Transit came and we moved the office down near Othello Station. Um, 
and and so yes, the 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 newspaper was a huge part of my life. I didn't expect to, but I didn't actually expect to work there. And um, and then in college, I just fell in love with history. My first year, I just fell in love with history because I think that history sits at this intersection of of humanities and social science. And so as a social scientist, I'm always striving for truth because I believe there's such a thing. And in humanities, you know that there's no such thing as truth in it. Everything's a story. And history, I feel like sits right at that intersection more than any other discipline. And it's just holding it tight. And it's just like, this is how we move forward. And yet, even though we know there's no point to truth, but yet we will continue to strive. And, um, and so then I started to reconnect with my uh, Vietnamese history in college through through studies because what I found out was uh, I was reading about the the, Viet- the Vietnam War and it was just huh well where's the South Vietnamese perspective and I learned through my dad and his friends that that perspective wasn't covered and um, and so and the war is actually seen as being between the Americans and the Vietnamese and the Vietnamese are de facto the North Vietnamese they're the communists and if you think about Apocalypse Now and all of this other all these big movies. Even like Ken Burns' eight-hour document documentary on Vietnam, he actually doesn't interview any South Vietnamese veterans who are living outside of Vietnam. Hmm. So just think about that. Think about censorship. Think about the different stories you're going to hear from someone, a veteran of the losing side in Vietnam versus outside of Vietnam, hmm. right? And so in any case, I got really interested, and that was my college uh, thesis where I interviewed 40 South Vietnamese veterans. Back then it was in English because I didn't speak Vietnamese at the time. Then I moved to Vietnam, started studying it, and um, I ended up getting a a PhD in Vietnamese history. And this time I studied the communist side, the communist revolutionary side. And then coming back to, to after I finished up my PhD, I realized that I wanted to get my real life MBA. And I did that by coming back to the newspaper and working at the newspaper. And then again, really getting uh, entrenched with the Vietnamese community here. And I think that was actually probably the period of my, where I spoke Vietnamese the best. Nice. I appreciate you both talking about, you know, framing it as like both abundance and loss. And I think that's a great frame for, especially this current time frame that we live in, right? There's a lot of loss for sure. And we think a lot about, um, I definitely would be, Remiss, I, I really know like the shootings that happened in the last couple of weeks uh, in Buffalo, in Dallas, um, in California. There's so many, so much heartache and loss um, and breaking. But even <clears throat> within the pandemic, there's a lot of uh, hope and abundance, right? Uh, the way communities came together, the realization of how powerful relationships are, our need for those who work in what are now we call essential fields, but maybe we didn't think so before. <clears throat> and there's just a reframing of the way the world works. I think that happened with the pandemic. Uh, so I appreciate you both telling a little bit about your connection to, you know, where you're from, right? And the stories there. I do want to talk a little bit about belonging and our, you know, our, our identity as uh, API folks. You know, where do you feel like the word belonging fits in your identity as, you know, someone that has a, a background from uh, Asian countries, where do you feel like you belong? Where do you feel like you don't belong? I would love for you to all riff on that. And maybe uh, this time we can go in reverse order and Julie, maybe you can start. Yes. I think that this is a, 
this this question, I think when I don't feel like don't, I belong is when there's a focus on the othering narrative. Mm. Um, because sometimes we talk about, oh, the API experience is the perpetual foreigner. And I actually don't really have that that experience. I, mean, I think maybe that's because there was so much pride in being Vietnamese and being um, having uh, being part of this refugee community. And it was always considered a, a positive thing and that we weren't we should be proud that we're Vietnamese. We should be proud of our history. Um, and also growing up in the West Coast, growing up in Seattle, just and and I went to Berkeley and that was lots of Asians there. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? sure. And yeah, yeah, yeah. and so, I mean, maybe part of that is also just, well, there, there are also uh, a lot of other um, Asians around, which is like there are lots of different kinds of Asians and you're learning about these different cultures. And so... So even the question of, I know that some people get really offended by the question of where are you from, especially where are you from? And then the, it's like, oh, you're, you're actually implying that I'm foreign. And mm -hmm. I actually take mm -hmm. that as like, well, this is where I grew up and I was born in Vietnam and I'll explain. And, mm -hmm. and I then like to ask, well, where are you from? And, um, and to have that back and forth. And so, and I, when I say that, I'm not saying that it's wrong to be offended by that question. I'm just saying that there are lots of different ways to take that question. Sure. sure. And so it kind of reflects my experience of, I actually feel in general, I, I have belonging when we can actually talk about our Asian-ness and not in contrast to who we are not. So mm. I remember I had this dinner party uh, a, a few years ago, just before the, just before the pandemic. And it was, I was uh, co-hosting with Michael Byung, who's the, at the time, he's the new executive director at Asian Counseling Referrals Services, and he wanted to get to know the, the local API community. And so we ended up having eight people at my home, and I invited people from different generations, um, different ethnicities, different ways of getting here, their own different origin stories. And I, I always like to ask the question of, what's the story behind your first name? And I took on a whole new meaning with this group, because we actually usually, there's Lots of people have an English name and a an Asian name, and there was all these stories behind it, and it was so interesting. And then at, by the and through just even that one question, we were just telling the stories of not just um, not just us, but our parents and how they came here, our grandparents, and and by the end of the evening, one guest who is you should think he's like third or fourth generation Japanese American, she said. We just talked about Asianness all evening without talking about whiteness. Hmm. And that was, it's like, yeah, we don't actually talk, we don't actually have to talk about who we are not. And I think that was what living in Vietnam, because I lived on and off in Vietnam for about five years, was the sense of pride among Vietnamese. There wasn't this. This like, oh, we're we're not as good. We're like, no, we're badass. We've got this, this, and this. And and it was really good to be in a place. I don't know, Frank, if you feel that when you're in Korea, it's just like, oh, all this 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 ethnic pride. Um and and so in a way it's just belonging can be a choice. And it mm. can be like I choose I choose to belong here. And I know that there are times where people really feel othered. I don't want to I don't want to um, underestimate that. I'm just saying that my Absolutely. experience, um, I've, I actually feel othered when I feel pressure to, to uh, talk about a 
the narrative of the perpetual foreigner when I actually haven't had that experience myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's fair. That's totally fair. I appreciate that perspective because uh, we always talk about how Asians, we are sort of so much, such a variety of backgrounds, religions, languages, places, climate, you know, and then so don't put us all as one uh, block. And that also means that, you know, like some of the, the stock stories about, you know, perpetual foreigner may not apply to some Asian folks when that's just totally normal. Yeah, absolutely. Maya, same question for you around belonging. Julie, I love I love thinking about those places in my life where you're right when you're in a community of of, of other Asians and how that dynamic is just it's just so fundamentally different. And you know, my my core friend group, my best friends um, growing up, my sister and my sister and I are very close. My sister and I are are about a year apart, and so we did everything together. You know, our friend groups are, are really one friend group, and our bet we had a, a good tight friend group. And some of our, you know, group is Cambodian, Korean, Vietnamese, right? Like there, there is, uh, Tongan was one of, a, a friend of mine. And our group was that diaspora. Um, I think interestingly that gr- the group of friends, that group of friends though was that diaspora, but very South and Southeast Asian, which I also think is something that when we think of the Seattle community, the, the 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 Japanese culture is very dominant here, and it, and it it makes a ton of sense why right there's a ton of Japanese uh, um, uh, descendants here five generations in, in this region um, and the same with the Chinese and so those narratives those narratives are very comfortable also for our white co- like white colleagues right ooh those feel comfortable and when you start talking about the diaspora like you just talk about Frank like all like fifty you know nations and hundreds of languages and, you know, climate's a really good, interesting one, right. Of like where you, you know, even within that, that it's not monolithic, but at mm-hmm. the same time for a very long time there, it all, I, I think growing up being conscious of being a Filipino and that, that it wasn't the hegemonic version of the Asian identity in society. And so we think about sort of the layers of belonging just within and, mm-hmm. and this idea that we're all fighting for the same, platform microphone and so it's not our turn yet right like it's not our it's not the philippine experience turn to sort of share that asian identity and it's interesting because in the last 10 years in seattle right we see this total shift and it, and it's come through food right and so that's yep. the thing is yep. like all of us who've grown up here have known for years where to get filipino vietnamese cambodian lao chinese which chinese we like which japanese you know like i the idea is I I grew up going there like you all did, I'm sure just and you had your family, I mean, family's restaurants to go to. But all of a sudden, it's like the rest of the world has made those other places. Ooh, food is this. Ooh, oh, oh, there's a, you know, it's like that. So this is comfort in the conversation now externally that has widened the platform. Right. I think, too. And, and, and that part's been really interesting for me because it's also what that has also done is it's legitimized in in at least in my family and, and community, the internal storytelling that has been missing. You know, mm-hmm. Julie, you mentioned earlier about like the humanities, like the truth and storytelling and family folklore history that our family history is always a combination of those things. The truth is not an empirical thing. It's it's the amalgam of these stories told over time, but the stories weren't told. I mean, my grandfather's generation, even if he was still with us or had gotten to me, would not have talked about this, right? My my family doesn't have Ilocano as a language because they were so concerned that 
they, that my, you know, my, my brother, my uncle, sorry, my dad and his two brothers, my two uncles are mestizo and they were already mixed race biracial kids. Let's not be any less American than we are. Let's, let's, we're not going to teach them the language. And so there is some of that loss in the, in the passing down of some of this, that the wider community being comfortable with a more complex history of an Asian American experience right now, even allows for some belonging in our family, because some of these stories are starting to surface, you know, the work that we've done through OSAs and sort of sharing that and being open. I, I have got gotten several um, inbound messages from my family members sharing stories that I've never heard. No one has told me about stories. Right. And it's starting to help us have that conversation, you know, as the third generation, the grandchildren of the original immigrants, the great grandchildren of the original immigrants to sort of start shaking the trees in our in, inside of our own in our own families um, to get to get at some of this stuff. And I, and I do think those things are related. I think there's a related component of sort of the wider society recognizing that distinction, that those distinctions exist, the nuance, there are layers to these things, you know, um, and and. And there was some bitterness, you know, certainly from the Filipino perspective. And because we came, because our, my ancestors came here with papers, because when my grandfather came here, you know, because of my General Dewey sailed into Manila Harbor and, Mm -hmm. you know, my grandfather went to an American school and learned English and got to come here basically with his green card at a time, you know, two years prior, three years after the the, the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? And so everybody but Filipinos, right? And so that that has left its mark in terms of the interdynamics of these things. And, and, um, you know, it would that was ever present, sort of in the family stories and the history that I that I learned as a kid growing up about where where we belong inside of the Asian community as Filipinos. Um, And so I think all of that is starting to be unpacked, and I think it's really healthy because um, because the story, the stories that the stories we have to tell, right, are are those ones where we all stand together in the face of othering and say that's not okay. But it's but it's equally not okay to stand behind um, one storyteller and one and mm. one perspective in this. Yep. In diaspora. And so I think that's that's where I look at these things from a belonging perspective and say, you know, we all we all belong here. Do you love Seattle? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. There are there are five generations and layers of of immigrant, refugee, right? Um migrant, labor related, non-labor related, American dream related, non-American dream related storytelling um that that are is essential for us to understand like sort of who we are as a Puget Sound region. Right now, and and you know, my kids are my youngest daughter, three years old, blonde hair, blue eyes. I married a Swede, but man, she's got a Filipino nose, right? <laughs> and, she, and she recognizes she recognizes her Filipino identity at three years old, um, even though to someone on the street she won't, she'll never, she'll never be asked, "What are you?" Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, and that and that question of "What are you?" I definitely, Julie, I have been on this side where it's like, "Why are you asking me?" and getting defensive about it. And it doesn't mean that when people ask that question, you know, even though their intentions are good, sometimes that the ignorance is definitely there. And the, without even recognizing like, oh, I'm not trying to do something wrong, but I just see an Asian person. I'm trying to curious, like, where are you from? Right. And they wouldn't do that with other people. And you can, I think it's, you know, it's totally understandable to be upset about that. And it's totally understandable to also like think about it. Like, how can I 
pivot here and then also like be genuine about my response, but also like ask them cur- curiously, like, what, where are you from? Right. Because a lot of white people get to also like never have to like describe like, oh, well, I'm, I don't know. I'm like, a, like English and Scottish. I don't, I mean, you know, we've been here for a while. Right. And so cool. Like I would love to like, you know, tell me the most like Scottish thing, you know, about your family history. Right. Let's, let's hear about that because it's not just us that we should be, you know, happily looking at our racialized background, not our racialized background, our ethnicity, right. And our history, because we want to discover those things. Sometimes we are set apart from it because our parents want to indoctrinate us into the country. I understand that. Um, but I think everyone can benefit from looking at their history and seeing where they're from and learning more about their family history. Um, and now I want to switch over to Maya and ask the question that we always uh, finish with, which is in the spirit of partnership and the spirit of mutual like benefit, what is something that you are working on, be it like your organization, your side hustle, your passion project that can benefit from our augmentation, our acceleration, or our uh, uh, amplification? So tell us a little bit something about what you're working on. Well, it's perfect segue, Frank, for, for OSAs. I mean, come on, that's that's a, that's the perfect lead in. Um, yeah. Uh, so, it you know, the Atlanta shootings happened and within about 48 hours. Um, I got a, I got a ping from Mimi Gan and Catherine Chang, who I serve on the, the wing loop board with. And they said, Hey, just talk to Mari Harita, who used to be the CEO of arts fund and is now at the Kraken. And so is, is also a good friend in our circle and Betty Fujikata, who, right. Who is, is, who's, um, who's in this group and Betty and, and the sounders had worked on a democracy cup. And so we were like, God, we were angry. And we've got to do something like this is not OK. Yet again, this racist act of violence targeting specifically, you know, Asian women and then these really reductive narratives that are so trade at trite uh, of sex workers and, you know, don't speak in English. They're immigrants. They 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 are they are in some ways expendable, right? Like this mm-hmm. is a, yes, it might be hate, but it's exp- and and it was the the narratives were so quick to coalesce around those those old tropes that um, Catherine was very angry, maybe a little bit a uh, a little bit profane in her anger, and rightfully so. And you know, we we sort of said, all right, what do, what do we what do we do with this? And and really, the project what was born from that. It was born from sort of disrupting these these you know reductive narratives that are so damaging with a proactive storytelling campaign and encouraging people. And to be fair, mostly young people, right? Because the generation that you know we've talked about um, that were that came here you know, in those earlier waves of history that are still with us just are so reluctant, have been so reluctant to share their stories. Um, but this younger generation and representative of now so many different dimensions of what the Asian American experience looks like um, and all a lot of intersectional sort of looks at the Asian American experience. And so we wanted to sort of tell that story. And, you know, you know, in Catherine's words, hers is like, look, the the people that you know that are Asian Asian American are in your lives every day. They're in your lives every day, right? And you you know these people, and you have conversations sometimes, maybe for years with these people, whether they are owners of your favorite local restaurant, whether they sell flowers in the market, right? And you and all of us have our favorite ones of the flower, like we go to first to see what you know and. 
So I, that, that, that platform to sort of t- to tell the ubiquity of the experience, the scope of the experience, and then just to get people to tell human stories about their experience, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that was the that was the genesis of, of Osays. And and you know we we couldn't we couldn't do we couldn't do everyone's story. We wanted to go after some high profile ones, you know. So we were able to get Vin Gupta to do it last year. We were able to do Doug Baldwin, which a lot of, I couldn't couldn't believe how many people didn't know that he was Filipino in part. And I was like, well, yeah, he's Filipino. Um, you know, we were. We were able to get Lana Condor to, to, to participate. And so we've got, we you know, folks with connections to the city of Seattle and then a whole bunch of other folks, including a DIY storytelling. And one of the things we really wanted was for these stories to have a place to live on. And the perfect intersection, mm-hmm. three of us right around the board for the wing, was the oral oral history archive at the Wing Luke Museum. And so that these things didn't just, just die on the vine or, or serve a social media purpose, but they are contributing to the historical legacy of our region. Um, and, and, um, you know, we got a, a number of companies invested not only in, in that work, we were able to, to, um, pay, right? The, the, a pay, a market wage to an almost entirely 100% AEPI crew, production camera, script, right? Everything, which was, which was what another goal for us, many of whom were women. Right. The five of us women leaders, but many of whom were women leading those those things, too. We wanted to tell a different story of women purposefully, um, you know. And so so the the Osage campaign has now won a few won a few little awards, which I just, just has, chuckle, chuckle at. We got universal support from the sports community. It helped having Mari and I, I think in leadership, but we were able to support and um, amplify that way. And, um, you know, and, and as we look to go into this year and continuing the project, Right. We were we were ahead. We were ahead on some of that storytelling. We're really able to bring some new new stories, really looking at women specifically again this year. We're able to involve the oil rain, which I'm really happy about personally, because we got Ali Watt and Sammy Hyde on that team that are Filipino. Um, and, um, you know, and, and I think for me, Osei's 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 is that proof of concept that once you start telling stories, you can't help but not share, right? Once the, mm-hmm. once the dam breaks a little bit. And like I said, I think we have had, and I've been personally in my life inundated with stories coming from my family as a result of this. And that's what this is really about surfacing some of these things, you know, a story of my great uncle Val Ligo, who was a pretty prolific business owner. He helped support a bunch of young Filipinos um, at the university of Washington he supported the uh, the group. So my, my grandfather was also in Alaskaro. So one of the Filipino workers who went to the canneries in Alaska um, seasonally to work in the canneries supported their trips there. He was um, in his, in his uh, lawyer's office talking about an investment in, in Oregon with another white man. An altercation broke out. That white man pulled a gun on the lawyer and my uncle Val jumped in front of the bullet and the bullet killed both my uncle, my, sorry, my, not uncle, my everybody's an uncle and a cousin, but no, my my uh, great uncle Val and and the lawyer, wow. um, and a young Warren Magnuson was the prosecutor. Only wow. the perpetrator was only prosecuted for the death of the white lawyer. So so my uncle Val died, and and not prosecuted. Wow. Um, and you know, and, and like that story was one that no one in my family had heard. That's my side hustle, you know. Other than that, it's I think a reflection of self-reflection of the role that I play. And I, I said this earlier, 
sitting as a not only a woman, but a, a woman person of color and specifically a Filipina in a position of authority in a in a very historically under underrepresentative space in, in mm-hmm. male sports in our country. And so, you know, a lot of the work that I do inside Sounders FC is to lead our work in social justice, to lead our work from a values-based perspective, to change our culture, to be leaders nationally in our industry, in our sport. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a lot. It's a lot. And as much as it's a, it's a passion of mine, it is really awesome and gratifying to have it in my role as an organ, as in a leadership role, but it's a lot. It's a lot to wear that um constantly. And it's yeah. not a bur- it's not a burden. It's it's just a very very important responsibility and one that, you know, I think I've be- begun to take more seriously because of Osei's, become begun to take more seriously because of what has happened and transpired over the last 2 years and mm-hmm. you know, um and, and and make sure that there is room at that table for other voices in our organization that represent sort of those other communities that have been historically underrepresented and in, in no way am I, is my, of my experience representative, sure. even though I might, I might be a representative uh, in the right. moment. Right. Not the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I appreciate that Maya. And I, you know, I definitely push our listeners, Hey, go check out the rain and check out the sounders. Yeah. We have a really great, uh, a soccer football culture here. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, Julie, I mean, same thing for you. I know that you did a small thing, like write a book recently. <laughs> um, and so I guess you can talk about that if you want, or if you have something else that's even awesomer, feel, to free, feel free to tell us about that. But yeah, tell us a little bit about the book if you want. Well, wait, first of all, I just have to say, I yes. love this oral okay. history project and that it's going to be housed in Wing Luke Museum. I love the Wing Luke. I actually live a few blocks away and I'm constantly introducing people to it. I love that hotel tour. So Yay, Wing Luke. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, um, and yay to, yay to oral histories too, because that's my favorite type of research. So um, so I guess I will, um, in the middle of the pandemic, I decided to leave my really awesome nonprofit executive job to start my own company called Curiosity Base. And and I did that for two reasons. One, because I, I discovered that curiosity is the key to resourcefulness, resilience, and open-mindedness. And I just wanted to foster that in the world. And the second was that as much as we talk about diversity in leadership and increasing diversity in leadership, I find that conversation is really focused on representation. It's really focused on recruiting leaders, recruiting, uh, um, recruiting more um, uh, women and people of color into, into leadership ranks and into the workforce. And that I, the analogy I like to use is um, the, the majority, though, of leadership and management books are still written by white men. And so we've got the we have got different actors and they're reading the same scripts. Oh. And so I think that what we need to do is expand. Expand. I love my I love my books by white men, but you know, there's room for more. <laughs> and um and so and that was another reason why I started my company so that I could contribute it and to also to advocate for it. So this um so for the different heritage months, we actually produce lists. Uh, we research lists of leadership books and memoirs written by that uh, that community. So this month we have actually an AAPI uh, leadership book list, and it's it's not an endorsement. They're not ranked. It's just hey, send us your list. We will we will include it, uh, or send us your recommendations. We will uh, we will include it. So um, so then the what I'd like to 
share is I just finished or I just published my book called Seven Forms of Respect, uh, a guide to transforming your communication and relationships in the workplace. And this is based on my years of community building and bringing together people from really diverse backgrounds and seeing that they would have, there's friction that would come up about how they wanted to be treated. And also then doing more research and uh, ended up doing uh, focus groups and workshops with over 400 people um, for this as well. And, um, and so there are two things I want to talk about with this book. One is at the heart, it's about culture. And it's about that we belong to multiple cultures simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the U.S., like a lot of the conversation is focused on race and that is important. And I can tell you that my dad really, really could talk a long time about how much he didn't like the Chinese. <laughs> so, you know, and I, yes, I'm Asian, but I will talk about being Vietnamese first. And mm-hmm. so, and, and also about someone who grew up in the North, uh, the Pacific Northwest and someone who, who's been able to global citizen got to live in the UK, Germany, France, and, and Vietnam. And so all of those different layers of culture actually influence how I see respect and, um, and to, uh, and to put forth this uh, conversation that respect is actually relative, it's subjective, and it's contradictory. And in that is to, to see that culture is nuanced. And um, so that's, that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of the book that I want to share um, is that I'm really proud that I self-published this book. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is, um, is because actually it, it started a few years ago in 2019. My dad really wanted me to publish my undergraduate thesis. He's like, you can do this on Amazon. And I mean, I wrote this in 2000, right? This is about the South Vietnamese military. And and I was just like, okay, dad, whatever you want, I'll do it. And so I did that on Amazon. And then he said, I we need to throw a party. It's like, I don't want to have a party. He's like, no, it's really important to have a reception. He said, okay, as long as you do all the work. And so he ended up organizing this big reception at Langston Hughes Performing Arts Center with 300 people and 75% of them were Vietnamese. And as I was looking out in this audience, I realized I was actually confronted with my internalized elitism because I realized why the reason why I didn't want to have a reception was because it was like, this book isn't real because I self-published it. And yet here I'm looking at all these people who this book, it matters to them. And if I had waited for, to find an agent who could then, who could then book me with a traditional publisher, who knows if my book, if this book would ever have been published because Mm -hmm. it would probably not be seen as commercially viable. And so it was just this wake up call of realizing, wow, there are so many voices who don't get heard because they are not considered, um, they're not considered commercially viable. And so I share this because fast forward last year, it's just, okay, I'm putting, I'm writing this book and, um, and I'm definitely self-publishing. And I actually turned to my community and I did an Indiegogo campaign and I said, will you help me? And I was actually able to raise my goal in 18 hours. Amazing. And I really feel that my community gave me my advance and it also allowed me to write it on my own terms because I don't have any restrictions, right? I don't, I, I hired an editor, but I don't have to say what, like the editor's not like, this is what you need to do. Right. And that's freedom. And so 
Um, and so I, I actually also encourage other people to look into self-publishing too. I had a friend who got, who's actually um, Filipina. She got rejected by 200 publishers. Wow. And I mean, the resilience, right? And she's, she actually wrote her book, um, It Takes Moxie, Maureen Francisco, about um, how, to, how to thrive as an immigrant, as a refugee. And yet she told me that story. He's like, man, I, like how much pounding my will would have had to take. And, um, and so that it is an option and that there is actually something liberating about saying, like, I'm going to do this on my own terms. And I'm just going to end with when I started my business, I, I remember telling my dad, hey, I'm going to leave my job in the middle of a pandemic and I want to do this. And I was really worried what he'd say because I thought he'd, he'd there'd just be a lot of concern. And he said, I'm so happy for you because now you have freedom. Hmm. And, and I, he's, I mean, he and my mom started this newspaper and serving this community of, I mean, there are lots of, lots of entrepreneurs in the Vietnamese community. Um, and that is, I mean, I think a lot about what success looks like and also what it feels like. And I realize I want success to feel like freedom. And mm. um, in asking this question of what does success look like, I also ask, what do you need to stop doing? What's preventing you from feeling that? And for me, I had to stop asking permission. I love it. And so that's, uh, so I guess the two Seven Forms of Respect is out. Check it out. <laughs> yeah. And I will get uh, uh, in the description for this podcast, we'll have links to the OCS campaign. Uh, they have a great toolkit, resources. You can go see the great stories that are out there. I freshly love the recent one with, a, and I might be pronouncing uh, her name wrong, Wei Nguyen, about the Vietz for Afghans uh, work that uh, um, is a part of. And that was really, really powerful. Uh, and then Seven Forms of Respect will have the uh, links so you can also purchase yours own. It's available in Kindle version, but it will also be available soon, I believe, in paperback. Yeah. And so we'll put links to that both. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you both. I know we've done a, uh, you know, we spent a little bit of time. It's like, what is it, 15 minutes in? And so I appreciate the time. And if there's anything closing that you want to say before we close the podcast, you know, Maya, if you want to say anything, or Julie, you want to say something, this is your time. If not, we can go close the podcast. Hey, I'm at seven, seven forms of respect and I want success to look like freedom. I feel like this is a win. Uh, I love, I love these opportunities. So appreciate, I, I, I love hearing other people's stories. I, I genuinely do. And, and so I appreciate you both sharing yours. Yes. You. I feel gratitude. I'm, I'm now thinking about abundance and loss and how it's probably like yin and yang and like they are together. And I really appreciate that framing Maya and Frank, you know, I always appreciate you. So no, I appreciate it. I appreciate you for appreciating me. I appreciate, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just, I, and also, you know, Maya was introduced by uh, Betty, you know, yep. friend and it's just the community, you know, when you ask your friends and good people like, Hey, do you know other good people? That's how we grow our networks. And so yeah, just shout out to the power of storytelling. Shout out to the voices that will not be undaunted and will continue going into the background. Uh, and that should be our voices too. Let's just keep pushing for each other, elevating our stories, you know, being our, our biggest fans and our fellow fans. And I just want to remind our listeners that, you know, no matter who you are or where you're from or what your background is, you should also feel like you belong here because we all do belong here. So I appreciate y'all. Thank you so much. <laughs>